That's near the end of your Bible. You go to the very end and back up a few books, you'll be at 1 Peter. We are continuing our series, Encountering Christ in the Old Testament, looking at a section of 1 Peter today. Certainly a book that's full of Old Testament citations. Peter knew his Bible and he used it. And uh, we actually are going to uh, spend some time in this book starting after the new year. We'll be in a series, once we finish this series and do some uh, Christmas and New Year messages, we'll be in a series from First Peter, and I am so looking forward to that. This is a great book, but we'll be in chapter 2 today, just looking at one segment of it as, it, as Peter looks to the Old Testament and the truths there. The title of the message is The Living Stone, or maybe also could be ta- uh, titled The Paradox of the Living Stone. Have you guys uh, ever heard of that word paradox? Paradox, it's not something that you have when you, you need when you have two boats. It's something else. A paradox is something that appears to contradict itself, but actually fits together. It appears to contradict itself, but actually fits together. There are many paradoxes in creation, uh, things that look like they don't meet. Uh, light, for example, is a paradox. Uh, that we don't fully understand. There's, some, there's more and more understanding with time, but light is, we know, a wave, an energy wave. and It comes in as a wave. It acts like a wave. We can, we can see that. We can model it. We can do experiments. It's an energy wave. It's energy. And without getting too deep into physics, you can talk to James Scoville if you want to hear more about this, but the universe is basically composed of, of matter and energy. And there's some other stuff, too, in there, probably, but... Uh, but basically, there's antimatter, but that's James' thing to talk about. Uh, but matter and energy. And, and light, you know, should fit in one of those categories. It's either energy, it's a wave, or it's matter. But we also know that if you bombard something with light, it can dislodge things from that material just like a particle would. It acts like a particle. It acts like matter as well. Or particles. So is it energy? Is it a wave? Or is it... Something else. Is it some sort of matter or particle? It's a paradox. We don't quite know, and there's some theories about it and so forth. There is some understanding there, but that's what a paradox is. There's, there's paradox puzzles as well, and I don't know if you've ever heard the, the statement that, uh, well, there's, there's a number of them. Imagine a fire-breathing, riddle-speaking, man-eating dragon descends on your front lawn and grabs one of your kids and says to you, I'll give you a chance to have your kid back. You've got to tell me what I'm about to do or you've got to predict what I'm about to do, you've got to say what I'm about to do or I'll eat your kid. What do you say? So, <laughs> well, you don't say, you know, you don't say, you're not going to eat my kid, right? Because then I'll eat your kid. So there's a, it seems like a paradox. There's an answer to that one and if, rather than being distracted throughout the message, I'll give you the answer at the end, but but that's a, it's a paradox. It doesn't... How, what do you do there? It doesn't seem to go together. So that's a paradox. But what, what I want to talk about today is a, ultimately a divine paradox. A paradox. A, a setting alongside two truths that seem contradictory. And there are two truths about Christ. There are two truths that are revealed in the Old Testament. And there are two truths that, that appear contradictory, but in God's ways and His character and in His purposes, they actually go right together. 
And these are two truths. This is a divine paradox. It's so important for us to understand because in understanding this divine paradox, we see the glory of God and we understand the Christian life better. So as we get ready to look at God's Word and look at this divine paradox, let's pray and ask Him by His Spirit to help us see these things and be changed by Him. Lord, we just thank You for who You are. and We thank You that You're glorious. And there's things about You that we don't fully understand. There's many things about You we don't. But Lord, we know You're God and You're wise. We thank You, Lord, in Christ Jesus, how You have revealed Your glory. And You revealed Your glory in these different ways, these, these truths that seem to contradict. So Lord, we pray You'd speak to us about Christ today. And Lord, it wouldn't just be filling our minds with, with ideas. Lord, we want to encounter You. We want to be before You right now and we want to worship. We want to be changed for You. So, Lord, we need You. We ask You to pour out Your Spirit. We thank You that we're received by the blood of Christ, that I am, that we are, uh, and we're invited into Your presence. So thank You. And so, so now we ask You to pour out Your Spirit as we read and as I preach Your Word. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Peter has been speaking about the New life in Christ, the, the Word of God, and its effect in our lives. And so he says in verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's 1 Peter 2, 1-12. Peter is seeking to minister to the sheep. We know Jesus commissioned him to feed the sheep, to care for the sheep. He's seeking to minister to the sheep, and so he is writing this letter, and he wants to serve them. And where does he go? Peter wants to serve these folks whom he loves because Christ loves him. He wants to serve them. Where does he go? Does he go to some self-help methods? Does he weave some nice stories to help them? They are facing trials. They're facing persecution. Life is hard for them. The Christian life, this life that brings forgiveness and reconciliation with God, that brings so much blessing, also for them is carrying trials. And difficulty. So where does he go? He wants to help them. He wants to serve them. Does he just give them some principles, three principles to a better life? Where does Peter go? He goes to the Bible. And in particular, for him, he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the Old Testament, the truths of God in the Old Testament, to bring them to his people in light of the revelation of Christ, to serve them. He knows what's best for them. He knows for them. They need to hear God's Word. They need to hear from the Bible. So he goes to the Old Testament. And we see in this section, there's a number of passages, both uh, set off by quotation marks as well as other phrases that Peter has from the Old Testament that he brings to the people. So he starts out in this section. And I won't be able to cover everything here. It's so tempting to try to talk about everything that's in here. It's so rich. But he starts out just calling them to put away the old way in light of the Gospel, in light of the Word of God, in light of the grace of God in their lives. Put off that old way of living. And he speaks in that first paragraph there. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And that's actually a quote from Psalm 34 where, where David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So it's important as we go into this and as we learn these truths about the living stone in the rest of this section, we understand that there's a background here of the Gospel of the Word of God affecting people's lives and of God's people, not only in Peter's day, but for us as well, tasting that God is good and longing for more, longing for that milk of of an intimate relationship with God in Christ and longing for more of that walk. So that's the background. I can't cover all that. When we go in the series, perhaps I can take more time. But that's the background. So from that point, in light of the grace of God, in light of, of tasting and seeing that God is good, He calls us to live this life with God. And so He starts into the section on the living stone. He starts talking about the living stone. He quotes from Isaiah in Psalm 118. We see there. And He teaches that this living stone, Christ Himself, and the living stones, us as well, but for Christ, that He is a rejected, discarded stone. He's been rejected. He's been rejected and discarded, yet He's the chosen precious stone. That's the paradox I'm talking about, that Christ Himself was a paradox of rejection and shame, but also being precious and chosen. And he teaches his people. He wants them to understand this truth about Christ because he wants them to understand the truth about their own lives. That to be a Christian is to follow Christ. To be a Christian is to be living stones as well who live in that same paradox of hardship, 
and scorn, perhaps suffering, and for Peter, Peter's audience, and for most of the Christian world over time, persecuted, yet blessed, yet loved, yet forgiven, yet called a chosen people, a royal priesthood. He wants his people to understand that, that their experience, their life, this seeming paradox of these two ways of living that go alongside come from Christ himself who lived this paradox. And that's, that's the sum of this section. He wants them to understand that Jesus is the paradoxical, paradoxical living stone. His people are to walk with him in light of this divine paradox. So let's look in a little more in depth at this, at this passage and at this truth. Peter jumps right in, right at the beginning, and talks about that. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He introduces this truth, and then he starts to bring out the implications for us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. That we ourselves are living stones. And he goes on, he quotes from Isaiah. Now this whole idea of the living stone is an idea that is in the Old Testament. It was... It was understood. Others had talked about it. And if we spent time, we won't spend time doing this today, but you can see Christ Himself taught this truth as well. He, he communicates to others that He was the stone that the builders rejected that became the cornerstone. And, and the, the, whole, the whole metaphor is the picture of building a building, perhaps the temple. And they would have large stones, granite-like stones. I don't know. It was probably limestone of sort in that area but these large stones that they would use to build a large building. And so the picture is of this stone that the builders said, ah, that one's no good. We're not going to use that one. We're not interested in this stone. But that rejected stone has indeed by God's hand been made the chief and most important stone, the central stone, the cornerstone, or also the metaphor is used of the capstone, the stone that goes on top. So this was something that was taught in Scripture. It's in, uh, it's in the Gospels. Jesus talks about it there. And so Peter was familiar with that, probably learned it from Christ himself, but he, he is presenting this key truth about Christ for us in First Peter as God's very words, as the Spirit-inspired words of God for us to enjoy. So he quotes from Isaiah 28.16. If we could put that up. I think we have it. If not, you can turn there. And he quotes from Isaiah 28.16. And this is a passage where God in the book of Isaiah is confronting the waywardness of the leaders and the priests. And amidst their waywardness, he brings truth. Isaiah is a great book. It's full of, of God dealing with the sinfulness of His people. But even amidst the sinfulness of His people, He's giving promises of forgiveness and redemption. It's, it's wonderful. It shows the heart of God. So amidst this conversation... Uh, God is coming, speaking through Isaiah to the people. He says in verse 16, while he speaks of this, well, I'll read the whole thing. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol and we have an agreement, when the overwhelming whip passes through it, it will not come to us. We have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. The people are making agreements, perhaps with Egypt or whatever, to get around God's judgment. And God says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be ashamed. And he goes on from there. So Peter is familiar with this verse, that this promise that God would, would lay this stone, this, this precious 
cornerstone. God, God prophesies through Isaiah about this amidst people who would ultimately reject His plan. He speaks of this chosen stone pointing to Christ. The one whom God would, would bring and those who trust in Him would not be put to shame. Would not be put to shame. So he cites this passage. He goes on from there as well. He cites Psalm 118. You guys, uh, actually, John, if you can put, put up the whole verse back there, that'd be great. The beginning one, right around verse 7. And so he cites as well. He's on this theme of the stone, the living stone. So he cites Psalm 118 as well. And this is a great psalm of celebration. Of celebration, it's a messianic psalm, but it's a celebrating God's goodness, His victory. There are portions of this that are used on, on Christ's entry into Jerusalem where they say, Hosanna, I believe, comes out of Psalm 118. Uh, and that one is Isaiah, actually. So I think it's the next one. Oh, that's the verse itself, sorry. Uh, in Psalm 118, I don't know if you have that, John, there. It says, uh, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And then it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in, us. Glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Familiar words from, from the day of the triumph of the entry into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So it's a celebration. And this celebration that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's, there's, there's a celebration of Christ ultimately coming as the cornerstone. So Jesus is the ultimate stone that these verses are speaking of. He is God's chosen stone and He's the rejected stone. So right from the beginning in the Old Testament, God knew what He was going to do in setting before us this paradox of one who is rejected, yet the chosen one. And so, so Peter's bringing this truth before us. He's emphasizing this truth and he's helping us see the imp implications that He is both the chosen and rejected one. It's really an amazing paradox to think about it. If you meditate on it and think about it a bit. He is the chosen and precious one. We've been looking at how God has been pleased with the Son. How the Son came as, as God's one, uh, chosen one who would come and be the, the better Adam. The Adam who would obey. That He planned to have His Son fulfill everything that Adam failed to do. We've learned that, that Christ has come as the one who would fulfill the righteousness imparted, imputed to Abraham, who would come and make it so that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Him. And that the Father has, has sent the Son. He's the chosen one, the, the precious one. He's the one who's better than Moses. He's the perfect David. He's the living Word of God. He's the perfect Israel. He's the center of Scripture. He's the, he's the chief of God's affections. God the Father's affections. He's the apple of His eye. When God looks out on creation, He loves what He's done. And He, and he loves His people certainly, but the apple of His eye, the, the one that pleases Him in every way, the one that thrills Him in, in everything that He 
has done is the Son. Christ the Son. He's the chosen, precious One. The Father's affection and regard for the Son is, is, is full and, 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 and beyond our comprehension. He loves the Son. He's His chosen One. His affection is for the Son. He's the apple of His eye. And we in Christ are counted the same, which is amazing. So He is the chosen precious One, yet, yet, the plan would be that He would be rejected and mocked. The plan would be that He'd be scorned and ridiculed. Part of the plan would be that folks would talk behind His back and slander Him. Part of the plan would be that folks would doubt Him. His own family even would doubt who He is. Think perhaps that He's crazy. Even in the face of miracles, great miracles. Part of the plan was that His own good friend, a friend who He regularly ate with and talked with and did life with, would turn and betray Him to death. Part of the plan was that all his close friends would abandon him. Part of the plan was that he would be subjected to brutal mocking. That a crown of thorns would be put on his head. A fake king's robe wrapped around him. That he he would be struck with a pretend scepter as people spat in his face and beat him to a pulp. Part of the plan would be that he'd go to the cross and suffer the most brutal death any government has designed. That He would be punished. That the Father Himself would turn away. In a sense, abandon the Son. As He was punished for sins He never committed. Part of the plan was that the terrible cup of wrath, God's righteous justice, His righteous wrath, would be consumed by Christ to the last it's a divine paradox it's a glorious paradox he's the chosen precious one he's the rejected scorned one and those two truths go together and actually marry together because it's in the rejection it's in the scorn it's in the shame that he received that he ultimately and fully pleased Father, that He ultimately was considered perfectly precious to the Father and to His people. Those two truths in Christ come together gloriously. They marry together. They fit together. This is from God's hand. It's the divine paradox of Christ, the living stone. And Peter wants his people, and God wants us to understand this truth. He wants us to understand it and live by it. To hold these things together. And to see that ultimately in Christ they fit together. And for us as His people even, they go together to God's glory. And so he continues in the section, he quotes from Isaiah as well. Again, Isaiah 8. He he brings this truth of Christ, the rejected one. He speaks of of what it means for God's people. And then he talks about the reality that this living stone, the paradox is that he was scrapped, yet set apart, set on high by God. And the paradox as well is that he 
causes people to stumble as well as saves. Those, the paradox goes together as well. It goes on. He, he is a rock of stumbling and a rock of salvation. And Peter lays his truth out from Isaiah 8. And you see it in your Bible where it says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Again, God brings this truth. This is a section where I believe God is uh, assuring Isaiah. He's speaking comfort to Isaiah. And he says in verse 12, is that up there? Good. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Israel. So God promises that 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 God Himself and God in Christ will be a sanctuary, a place of rest and refuge, and a stone of stumbling as well at the same time. And so, so Peter cites that here in verse 7, in verse 8 actually. That, that these two truths go together alongside. So for us as His people... He wants, Peter wants his people, he wants, God wants us to find our sanctuary in this living stone. The promise is for us. Peter says, the honor is for you who believe. So the blessing of this reality is for us who believe. That the result of him in his life and being this living stone that's chosen of God is salvation for us. It's life for us. And so we know that even in His rejection and in His being chosen of God, that is, has provided for us the way of salvation. His death, His abandonment has achieved forgiveness and righteousness and a right standing before God. His rejection is our acceptance. His tragedy is our victory. His loss is our gain. And He's replaced our shame with honor before God. So He's that place of salvation for us. And we're to taste that reality. And we're to see that God is good. Our ability to live the Christian life comes out of the contemplation, the realization of Him as this paradox. The chosen one who was rejected for us. The one who died was mocked suffered for the wrath of God. The one who is this divine paradox. Our life flows from that. Our ability to find Him even today as our sanctuary, as our salvation, as our hope and our strength comes from contemplating that He went to the cross to die for my sins. For your sins. And He rose again. Your ability, my ability to to walk out the Christian life comes from the power of the Gospel, the good news of His death and resurrection. So that sanctuary, that, that reality of Him bringing salvation comes through what He did. comes from the marrying of that divine paradox together and our ability to taste and to see and to grow in life and to walk with Him comes out of that. And I know you guys have heard this before. This is why we're Gospel-centered as a church. This is why we always return to this. Not because 
we're just not that creative and can't think of anything to talk, other things to talk about. It's because this is the center in Scripture. And all the other things God calls us to as a people flow out of this. And your, your experience of walk, your walk with God flows out of the centrality of the Gospel. And I know if, you're, if you are a Christian, you want to walk with God. You have tasted and seen that He is good. You wouldn't be a believer if that weren't true. So you have. And your ability to keep on tasting and seeing that He's good, and your ability to keep on keeping on, your ability to put off sin in old ways and embrace Him, your ability to live amidst this divine paradox that God has ordained, this mixture of finding life and sanctuary amidst scorn and suffering, your ability to endure comes from centering on the truth of the Gospel. And you will not endure if you do not remember the Gospel. And that is the message that the Spirit of God is eager, eager to bring home to you. Now, God's Word is broad and there are broad implications of the Gospel message. We don't want to neglect those things. But the Spirit of God, in a unique way, hovers around this truth of Christ crucified and brings power to His people through it. And if today you are weak in your walk with God, and you are facing the trials and the scorn and the suffering, whatever it may be, your ability to continue will come as the Spirit of God speaks to you through the truth of Christ crucified for you. And He died for you. He died for your sins. He died because He loves you and He wants you to be wholly His. He wants you to be forgiven. He wants to break the power of that sin in your life. And He's so serious about you and His pursuit of you and the glory of the Father, that, he, that His own glory, that He sent the Son to die for you in that sin and that struggle to meet you even today, even right here by the Holy Spirit in light of His death for you in that sin. He wants to break its power. And in contemplating that He died for that sin and rose again victorious, you'll find power. That's where the Spirit of God meets you. That's where the Spirit of God breathes on you and gives you that ability to go on and to grow and to put on holiness and to endure and to do His will. I hope that's clear. I hope that makes sense. That's the place. That's where life is for us in His crucifixion and His resurrection. That's where there's power. So we need to know. We need to contemplate this divine paradox. We also have to realize the reality that to live in this world is to live amidst scorn and suffering. That's part of what was going on for the people Peter was addressing. That they were living amidst a world that was tough. They were being persecuted uh, to some degree. We don't know the details. We know the history of the church, don't we? That persecution has been intense. And we really haven't seen a whole lot of that. But right now, in the world right now, for many believers... These truths keep them going. And without this truth of Christ and the divine paradox He lived, they couldn't do it. Without the realization that to be a Christian is to live amidst the One who is chosen and precious and the blessing that flows from that and to follow the One who was rejected and scorned and the pattern that God gives us for that, that truth is what allows them to move on. And so 
I have a couple slides to show you just to remind us of the reality for many people. Right now, actually this past week in Mosul, Iraq, I don't have a slide for this, thousands of Christians had to flee that city under death threats. Can you imagine? In the middle of the night you get a phone call, some muffled voice says, get out or we'll kill you. And you know they mean it. And all your friends get the same message. If you're not out by the end of the week, you're all dead. And so there's thousands of Christians this week fleeing Mosul to get away from death. China, the reality in China right now is there's persecution. To be a believer is to be rejected and scorned in many ways. Thank God for these faithful brothers and sisters who have grabbed a hold of this truth and the pattern of the life in Christ. Do you have one to show, John? This one is just a, a keep the picture small because you don't want to see the details, but a pastor and his family, they came, moved in. It was a house church and they beat up. They took the pastor away. His sons came to defend the mother who was being beaten. They were severely beaten. Uh, one of them, uh, there's a picture there. They, they survived, but that's what they face. This was just last week. Also, just the other week as well, next picture. A woman named Gail Williams, a South African British citizen, was was gunned down in Kabul, Afghanistan. And this woman was over there to minister in Christ's name to disabled people. And uh, the Taliban killed her because she was a Christian. This just happened just a few days ago. That's the reality. These truths matter. These truths matter for these brothers and sisters. And these truths matter for us, too. Though we may never face the same degree of persecution, we might, but we may never in our lifetime. We live amidst the reality of a world that stumbles over Christ. That the message of the Gospel to them is offensive. It is something they stumble over. The message of the Gospel is a stumbling stone to them. They don't want to hear it. They don't want Christians to be Christians. Because natural man left to himself does not want to hear a message about a crucified king. And for different reasons they don't want to hear it. Historically, sometimes it's just been because who wants to follow a crucified king? Who wants to follow a loser who was crucified? What sort of leader is that? That's been one reason. Also, the other reason we find more prevalent today is that it's just offensive that God somehow says I'm so bad that God has to die for me. I'm not that bad. No one's that bad. Maybe Hitler, but not me. That's offensive. That's the reality. And that's the reality we all have known as well. For in our hearts, apart from God's grace, that's our disposition. And we live in a world that stumbles over Christ. We live in a world that rejects Him. And we face that to some degree around us. It's not like what our brothers and sisters are seeing, but we live in that. And we need to understand that. And if you are one who stumbles over Christ, I appeal to you to reconsider. Part of our job as believers is is not to just say, well, you stumble, tough luck, see you later. We are called as ambassadors. We're called in the realization that God desires that none should perish. He's sovereign over that. And we learn from our passage He is even ultimately destines those to stumble who do. We don't understand how that works out. He, another paradox, He's 
desiring none to perish, yet He's sovereign over that. But that truth is never to inhibit us from being, like our Savior, ambassadors. Making appeals to people. Even as they persecute us. Even as they reject us. Consider Christ. And if you are one who stumbles over Christ, we make our appeal. He may appear weak and undesirable, but He came for people like us. Sinners. Who have pursued the ridiculous objective of life apart from God. It's just insanity. We are made for God. And we, left to ourselves, pursue this insane objective of living life on our own terms and our own way for ourselves. It's just insanity. And it will kill us. And God in His mercy has sent His Son to rescue you from that. To break the power of sin over your life so you can be free from it. To pay the penalty of that sin in His Son on the cross so you can be forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future. And to call you to follow the crucified King. And I appeal to you to reconsider Him. He receives any who would come to Him. So come to Him. Don't run from Him. Because there will be a day when there's no longer an opportunity to find Him as your salvation. It will only be as a stumbling block. And He will give to you what you have expressed as your desire throughout your life, a life apart from Him. Ultimately. That's what hell is. An eternity apart from God. And there's no worse thing to ever think of than to be separated from His goodness forever. So come to Him. Find Him as your salvation. Peter in this section spends time helping us understand the implications of living this way, living in light of this paradox. And just a couple, few more things to, to cover as we close. That he calls us as living stones to recognize that we, though we may suffer, we are safe. He's speaking to people who are going through real suffering. Real suffering like we saw in Afghanistan and in China. And he wants these people to understand that, folks, your identity isn't as sufferers. Your identity isn't as the persecuted ones. Your identity isn't as evildoers. The world may think you're a loser. The world may think that you're an evildoer. The world may say, you, just, you don't know what you're doing. You're ridiculous. The world may say all these things and you may think through your suffering and your trials that somehow I'm a failure. My life is a loser. Peter wants the people to understand, no, not at all. Not at all. And so, he speaks of this reality we live in, but then says, so the honor is for you. And then later on, he speaks to them about their identity. In verse 9, these ones are stumbling. They are persecuting you. They have stumbled. But, but you're not... You're not merely the ones that are persecuted. You're not merely the ones who suffer. This is who you are. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. Think about what these words mean. If our Chinese brothers were here, hearing this amidst what they're going through. Think of what it means when we perhaps are tempted to identify ourselves somehow as losers in this world. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for His own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These folks may be suffering. They may be rejected. They may be shamed. They may be beaten. They might even be murdered, but that's not who they are. The chosen people of God. They are God's own possession. They are ones who are to have. We are ones who are to have hearts full of the awareness of God's goodness and gratitude, knowing that we're destined for eternal joy in Him. Just as Christ was rejected, it is chosen. We as living stones, though may be rejected, we're chosen. And there's no better honor than that. This world and its ways will pass very quickly. And the upside-downness of this world that calls good bad and bad good will get turned right side up forever. And we will be and God will be vindicated in the end. That's the reality. That's the truth that Peter wants them to hear. And my question for you as a believer is, what is your identity? Question for me. What is my identity? Where do I find my identity? Is it as a sufferer? Is it as a sick person? Is it as someone who's scorned? You know, we go through those things and it's, it's amazing how quickly we can take on that identity. I have very, very few uh, health issues. There are much more significant ones around me, but I have a bad knee. And it's easy for me to live by my knee and to find my reality by my knee, how healthy I am. Oh, I'm I'm an old man now, and at least my knee is, and I can't do the things I used to do. I can find my identity there. And I can imagine how much more tempting it is for those who have gone through sickness, long-term sickness, or long-term failure, or whatever it might be, to find their identity in those things. I'm the sick one. I'm, I'm the failure. I'm the one who did this wrong, evil thing ten years ago. And that's who I am. If you are a believer, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. That's not how God sees you. That's not His picture. That's not your destiny. You are part of a chosen people. A royal priesthood. You are His favored possession. That's who you are. That's what Peter wants to communicate. The band could come up. Just one more point. We are... suffering yet safe. We are scorned yet... Shining, And so Peter appeals to them as they live in light of this truth, as they live in light of this paradox. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that on the day of visitation they may glorify God. Though those around us might scorn us, Though life may be hard, the call of God is to shine for Him. To shine for Him. To live a life in light of Christ. To live a life in light of His forgiveness and His life. To live a life in light of who we are. To live a life that's tasting and seeing that God is good. He's died for me. And given me a future and He's here to help me. Because of these things, when I am scorned, when I am rejected, when people don't treat me well, 
When life is hard, when I'm sick, I can turn around and shine for God's glory in that. I can love people. I can live for others when the temptation is to focus on self. I can live out my identity. I can be like Christ who was rejected and abandoned by all, yet set His sights on the Father and His glory and His love for the people and live for others. So we are called to shine even while being scorned, even while suffering. We're to shine for Him. These truths are what give us power by the Spirit to do that, to shine for Him. And and I know I get to see you guys. You guys do shine. And there's more that He wants to shine through us. And He's not here today, perhaps by God's providence. We know it's by God's providence. But Sylvan Casimir is just one guy I thought of as I went through this section. Here's a guy who is shining for God's glory. Uh, Sylvan has some very difficult work circumstances. I don't know all the details, but very difficult for him. And yet, from what I can tell, he's not defining his life by those things. He is thinking of others. And just one example with the Donleys. I know that he's been faithful to show up a number of times there, armloads of food and armloads of affection for them. Here's a man shining, though scorned. And you wouldn't even know unless you pried it out of him about the other aspects. But he's shining while scorned. God wants to shine through us, even when life is hard. And it's through grasping this paradox of our Savior and who He is and the life He calls us to that we can do this. There's more shining to happen. I can think of a million possibilities. And I know there's already many ways you guys are shining. Just the other night, Peg and I were at the Pregnancy Care Center banquet. Um, this is a group in Hayrolls area in southern New Hampshire that is offering care for young pregnant mothers, not necessarily young either, but ones in crisis who are considering perhaps aborting their child. And in a very real way, they're coming in and caring for them and counseling them and providing for their needs and providing for their needs after the birth as well. And they showed us at the banquet uh, pictures of, I think it was about 70 babies uh, saved over the past year through their ministry. And these guys shine. And there's many churches involved, and, I, and we're as a family considering our involvement as well. There's many ways to shine. Our deeds, because of Christ in us, because that He lived this paradox and leads us in it, our deeds are to shine for Him so that on the day of His visitation, those who have mocked us will say, you know what? There was a neighbor I knew. very ordinary person. But I didn't always treat him right. Yet, she loved me. She prayed for me. And when my kids were sick, she helped. But when this went on, they were there. And that person will either glorify God on that day, just recognizing that truth, or perhaps they will glorify God on that day because... Through those deeds, they were pointed to Christ and beheld Him and followed Him as well. God calls us to this. The last slide, John. We live according to this glorious paradox of Christ, the living stone. We may be scorned, but we are to shine. We may suffer, that we are eternally safe. 
We are the living stones who live by the living stone. The one who stumbles some but saves many. The one scrapped by some but set on high by God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are glorious as this living stone, rejected yet chosen. And we thank You so much for this, that You have died for sinners, that You have suffered for us, and You have rose victorious over sin and death. And You are the chosen One. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, would You so fill us with this truth and this power that we may as living stones follow and live amidst this reality, safe yet suffering, shining those scorns. For Your glory we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. We're going to sing a, uh, a few lines here as a response to the word we just heard. Um, in in two nine, 9 yes, um, you have it said, the purpose of God choosing his people um, is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we respond to that by saying, yes, Lord, we will, in fact, run out of darkness and out of shame to your light. Not on account of our own capacity to run, but on account of God's goodness to call us from that. Uh, and so as we close, we'll, we'll begin that closing uh, with just singing these lines. Into marvelous light I'm running And out of darkness and out of shame By the cross you are the truth You are the light You are the way Into marvelous light I'm running out of darkness and out of shame by the cross you are the truth you are the light you are the oh, sing that one more time into marvelous light I'm running out of darkness and out of shame by the cross you are the truth you are the light you are the way my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's on Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil on Christ. It's on Christ the solid rock I stand All of the ground is sinking sand All of the ground is sinking sand His oath, His covenant, His blood Support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way, even is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. It's on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground. Sinking sand, all the ground is sinking sand. And on Christ the solid rock I stand, all the ground is sinking sand. All the ground is sinking sand. Lord, bless you this week. May the one who was rejected yet was chosen. May the one who suffered and died yet has risen. May he strengthen you in his life to be living stones for his glory this week. The Lord bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.